Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. We're only looking at one verse, but this verse in many ways could summarize the entire Bible. It's page 958 in the Bibles there in your chairs. We're continuing in our sermon series covering the vision statement of Redeemer Church. And as we've said before, this is not just our vision statement. The way we understand this, the way that we see this, the way that we've crafted this is we would really tried to summarize all the Bible says to believers, all the Bible says to Christ's church, all the Bible says to us as Christians about how we are to live in light of God. And our vision statement is this, because we exist to exalt Christ, we strive to see lives transformed to the glory of God through the proclamation of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit to all peoples. So far in the first sermon, we have seen the reason, the foundation for our existence, the purpose of our lives as human beings and our new lives as those who have been recreated in Christ. And that is to exalt him. That is to praise him. That is to put him first in our lives. We were created and recreated for the purpose of exalting Christ, to praise and glory and honor him as our creator, as our Lord, as our redeemer, as our savior. That foundation then leads to a motivation. It leads to a response, something that we do in light of that. Because we exist to exalt Christ, we strive. This is our mission. This is our activity. Right? We are fallen creatures living in a fallen world. And the result of that, knowing that we are meant to glorify Christ, is going to mean effort. It's going to mean work. It's going to mean purpose to our existence. And then last week, we further clarified what that mission is. The goal of mission. To see lives transformed. We recognize that the gospel is the power of God for change. And so because we exist to exalt Christ, we labor towards the goal of becoming more like Christ, being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. And not just for ourselves. It's not just about me. But we do that communally. We do that corporately. We seek to help one another grow into Christ. Today, we provide the intended outcome, the glory of God. This phrase is actually serving as the ethical gauge, the measuring device for our exaltation, for our mission, for our transformation. This is the ethical standard of our effort. How do we know whether we're doing right or not? The glory of God. The ultimate end that we are trying to seek is not simply to help people worship Jesus a little bit more than what they did before. The goal is not simply to get people to live their lives on mission just a little bit more than they did before. The goal is not just to change some behavior or attitude to help them be just a little bit more like Jesus than they were before. The end that we are seeking is the glory of God. His glory. And when we think about that, it has radical implications on our daily lives. Radical implications. Our text this morning is one sentence. But it's one sentence that will transform our lives forever. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. As followers of Christ, we are called to seek God's glory in everything. Everything that we do is meant to glorify Him. Now, if we're honest, right up front, let's just be honest, okay? This is an overwhelming concept, is it not? Right? Just the thought of my every attitude, my every decision, my every thought, my every action intended to glorify God? Well, that's huge. How are we to do all things to the glory of God? 
I mean, this is an ethical issue. How are we to live our lives every day in light of the glory of God? How are we to think about those thousands of decisions that we can encounter daily? How should we think about those, those, this passage? How should we think about it affecting those decisions when the Bible doesn't give explicit commands or prohibitions? Right? How do we think about it? Like, I get don't murder. I get don't steal. But what about my decisions regarding my major? Whether or not I should get a tattoo or some piercing or what type of music I should listen to or how much money I should spend on clothes or the people that I associate with or how I talk or think about homosexuality or how I should think about contraception or what job I should take or how I should, should I respond as a Christian parent to this situation? Is it okay for me to have a drink with dinner? How much time should I spend on Facebook? Is it okay for me to have an occasional cigar with my friends? What movies should I or shouldn't I go and see? What things should I consider in looking for a spouse? How do I put myself out there to find a spouse? And the list goes on and on and on and on and on. I just began to dabble in all of the questions that we can ask in living life to the glory of God. And just the idea of these decisions can be paralyzing. I know that many of you thinking about your future. Of your students, you're thinking next steps. You're thinking jobs. You're thinking spouses. You're thinking children. You're thinking things like that. And just the idea is overwhelming. It's paralyzing. You don't really know what to do or how to think about it. And often it's so paralyzing that the only way that we can really get ourselves to move forward, to actually do anything, is just to follow what we believe to be the natural course of things. Well, this is what people do. This is the next step in the progression of my life. Everybody else is doing that. I should do that thing. That's what, and so we're following some type of, of social norm, or we're, we're doing what our guidance counselor recommends, or what our doctors recommend, or we're We're listening to what this professing Christian says or that professing Christian says or those professing Christians say about whatever this issue is. We're we're doing what, this is what my friends have done. This is what culture tells me. This is what the media says. This is how politicians or preachers or my parents are trying to steer me. And those are not all bad things. Those can be really good things. But they're not ultimate things. And so many times our decisions are based upon those. And without ever realizing it, we develop this ethic of social norm or this ethic of people-pleasing or an ethic that says God doesn't really care about that. That's a gray issue. That's not really, uh, we can't come to a definite conclusion on that. Or we develop an ethic that says whatever doesn't cause a person harm, depending on my definition of harm, then it's okay. Or an ethic of what is permissible rather than what is truly helpful, what is truly beneficial, what truly builds up, what truly seeks the glory of God. Our guiding moral compass is what can I do? What can I get away with? It's an ethic of personal liberty. It's an ethic of license. It's an ethic of me. I'm at the center of my decision making. I'm what's ultimate here. Has any of this struck a chord with you so far? I believe it has to. It strikes a chord with me. Not that I'm super, I'm more religious than you or something like that, but it's like this hits all of us. But this passage points us to something greater. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We are called to seek God's glory in all things. And for us to understand that this morning, we have to answer three questions. First of all, what is the glory of God? I mean, what is it? Second, why are we called to seek the glory of God? And third, what does it mean to do all things to the glory of God? First, what's the glory of God? We can't do all things to the glory of God if we have no idea what the glory of God is. Am I right? We're just kind of shooting in the dark. What we think is 
is honoring to him or glorifying him. We can sing songs about the glory of God. We can read books and, and read our Bibles and read about the glory of God. We can talk to one another about the glory of God. But do we really, really understand what that means? What is the glory of God? Now, trying to come up with a sufficient definition of the glory of God is like trying to come up with a sufficient definition of perfection or a sufficient definition of beauty. I mean, have you ever tried to come up with a definition of those? I would say when you think about the glory of God, it encompasses perfection and beauty, right? We can't understand perfection and beauty apart from the glory of God. So how should we think about God's glory? Well, in the Old Testament, God's glory reveal, uh, it refers to his visible and active presence in creation and among the nations, but especially towards his covenant people, Israel. Okay, so when God revealed himself, it is described as glory. Okay, so think in your mind, just stories you've read in the Old Testament. Think about, think about the burning bush. Thinking about pillar of cloud and fire. Think about the smoke and the, the clouds and the thunder and lightning that, that descended upon Mount Sinai. Think about sun and stars. Think about earthquakes. Think about smoke filling the temple. Think about bright white light. These are merely a few of the awe-inspiring images that we have given in Scripture that convey the power and the grandeur and the brilliance and the majesty of God. When, we, when God would speak, when God would reveal himself in these theophanies, in these visible manifestations of himself, the response would be awestruck wonder. We think about how Isaiah responded to the vision he saw of God in the temple. What was me? For I'm a man of unclean lips. Considered himself doomed. Ezekiel could barely peer between his fingers, right? Daniel felt sick to his stomach. You know, it was awestruck wonder. In addition to that as an idea for the glory of God, creation reveals the glory of God. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So if you've ever been out and you've, you've seen some beautiful landscape and that, that kind of breathtaking awe that you've had in that moment as you watched that sunset or you, you thought about the vastness and the complexity of the universe as you study astronomy or, you know, you're, you're at the beach or you're on some mountains and you have this, this amazing experience where you're just beholding the glory of creation, that is meant to point us to something that is greater, the glory of God. God's acts within history to redeem his people. So when you read the stories about how God worked through miracles of plagues and parting of the Red Sea or the ultimate pinnacle of the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ, we are meant to look at God's work in redemption and stand in wonder. And when we think about God's nature, his power, his wisdom, his eternality, when we think about God's character, his perfect character, his goodness, his righteousness, his mercy, his holiness, his justice, his love. When you think about God's perfect promises or God's perfect purposes in the world, all that God has shown himself to be, all that he has spoken of himself in his word, all of that is the glory of God. God's revelation of himself who he is as we in our frail and finite minds can comprehend him, that is the glory of God. And that is breathtaking, and that is not all that God is. The Old Testament word for glory literally means heaviness or weightiness or abundance, wealth and honor. When we truly and rightly contemplate God, it is heavy. Our thoughts are weighty. When we meditate upon the depths and richness of God, it demands honor. This is no light matter. 
The New Testament word for glory means reputation and praise. When we think about God's glory, God's reputation is at stake. This is why it's so essential that we think about God rightly, as he has revealed himself, not as we want him to be. Our thoughts about God should elicit praise, praise in our own hearts, and praise in others as we commend his glory to others. I mean, do we think about his sovereign rule as creator? Do we think about the splendor and reverence of his divinity? Friends, these are no light and fleeting thoughts. You can't simply think about the glory of God that way, as trivial, as insignificant, as ineffectual. So when you think about God's nature, we think about God's character, his purposes, his promises, or any way that God has revealed himself in Scripture, that is God's glory. And we don't have to look far neither in the word of God nor in the world around us, to see that it is full of his glory. Just a couple of weeks ago, I talked to you about the glories in mowing my weed-infested lawn. Right? It's amazing. The truth is we could spend every moment of our lives contemplating the glory of God and never, ever, ever exhaust its riches. But another moment of honesty... We don't, do we? We don't. I, I don't. Even in those fleeting moments where I mow my lawn and I, I can see it for the glory that it is, there are plenty of other times where I hate mowing my lawn. Right? It's not like that every time. If we're honest, our thoughts about God are often infrequent, fleeting, and unaffectionate. We can read or hear or even talk about God's glory and our minds, our hearts, and our lives are unaffected by it. You ever think about why that is? I can tell you it's not a problem with God. It's a problem with us, with our hearts. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Though God is perfect in all of his glory, and though he has clearly revealed it to men, we have all Exchange the glory of God for other things. This is what Paul means when he says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's not that we ever had a hope of, of reaching the pinnacle that is the glory of God and we somehow just missed the mark. It's no, it's that we exchanged the glory of God for lesser things. We are idolaters by heart. Worshipping and serving different aspects of creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. The reason why I don't automatically do all things to the glory of God is because I am a sinner who worships lesser things. I trade the glory of God in for trinkets, for ideas, 
The core of our problem is a heart malfunction. We are defective worshipers because we suppress the truth about God in our unrighteousness and exchange His glory for lesser things. And they can be good things, but they're lesser things. And because God is perfect in all His ways, God must punish sin. If God is completely glorious, and he is, if glory that is due him, is owed him, is given to other things, then God being holy and righteous and just and loving must punish sin. He must punish this rebellion. He must punish this suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and and worshiping and serving creation rather than creator. He must deal with it. God is jealous for his own glory. Not jealous the way I get jealous if some guy looks at my wife inappropriately, but truly jealous for his glory. He's there to protect his name. There's no sin in his actions. Not that he needs glory, not that he's lonely, not that he needs love and was somehow incomplete apart from creation. Okay, God was completely glorious before he ever created anything. But because God is completely glorious, it is only right for his glory to be enjoyed so he created. That is why God created. He's jealous for his name. He will not give his glory to another. It's not right. He won't let his glory be exchanged for an image, for an idol, for a sinful desire within your heart. He cares too much for his creation. So here is our predicament. God is perfectly glorious in all of his being. He deserves that our every thought our every word, our every deed, our every attitude be done to his glory simply because of who he is, that all glory is due him because he is all true glory. But yet we have rebelled against God. We have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. We have exchanged his glory for lesser things. We have gladly and willfully placed ourselves under his condemnation, and we deserve his just and holy wrath. Now, that is just the smallest glimpse of the glory of God. But I hope it's enough for us to see why we don't do all things to the glory of God, what his glory is, why we don't do it all to his glory, why we fail to see it. And so now we can answer the question, why are we called to do all things to the glory of God? We know what it is. Now, why are we called to it? Now, I think that most of us would agree, at least to some degree, that, uh, that we would affirm the glory of God in our own sinfulness. Right? I, I think that we would all, everyone here would, would get that to a degree. Am I, am I correct? Does anyone fail to see that? It's okay to respond like with a head nod. I, I like that. Let's me know that you're hearing me. Okay? I think that we would also, to some degree, affirm the rightness of the command to do all things to God's glory. That's a noble and worthwhile effort, right? Again, head nods would be appreciated. Thank you. All right. But if we're honest with ourselves, again, honesty is a big part of this. We don't really want to, do we? We don't really want to do all things to the glory of God. In fact, we outright refuse to do all things to the glory of God a lot in our daily lives. This is evidence that we are still suppressing the truth about God in unrighteousness. But have you ever thought to yourself, why? Why do I not want to do all things to the glory of God? Why is it that I rebel against that notion? What am I wanting? What are my desires? What are my motives? Have you really sat down and contemplated your rebellion against God? Now, there are a lot of reasons that we can come up with why we don't do all things to the glory of God. Here are a few of some of the big ones. One big reason why we don't do all things to the glory of God is because we have a small view of God. 
we simply don't really know who he is. We haven't studied him. We haven't contemplated him. We, we don't think about his nature, his character, his purposes, or his promises. To us, God is, is distant. He's aloof. He's just kind of out there as an abstract idea, but he has no desire to relate to us in any fashion whatsoever. Or maybe even to some, he's, he's a tyrannical egomaniac, right? That, that he's like some arrogant king that gets his kicks by bossing people around and humiliating them for his own sick and twisted pleasure, that he creates all of these good and wonderful things and he holds them out there for us and say, look at this, look at this, you can't have it. It's not for you. You have to do things to my glory. This is not for you. He's just mean. He's just arrogant. Friends, that might describe Greek gods or Hindu gods or even the God of Islam. But that does not describe the God of the Bible. You need to know him. To study him. To see how God condescends to have a relationship with enemies and God-haters. And how even despite the fact that he is all-sufficient, eternally existent, God longs to have a relationship with insignificant creatures like us. But maybe that's not you. But maybe this is. You fail to seek God's glory in all things because you're afraid that if you do, you will miss out on all the best stuff that this world has to offer. You'll miss out on your best life. That there will be things that you will encounter in this life that you long to do and you're afraid that, man, that's so good. How could that not be what I'm supposed to do? How could I not pursue a sexual encounter with this person or that person? How How is it that I shouldn't pursue my relationship with that person or that person? what, what, What if I miss out on enjoying all this world has to offer, whether it be drink or smoke or drug or food? Maybe I'll miss out on some experience that everybody tells me is so amazing or seeing this thing that everyone tells me is so great. I, I want God. I do. I really want God, but I want all that stuff too. Or maybe you're afraid that if I do all things to the glory of God, then it won't go according to my plan. I'll lose control of my life. I'll, I won't get to make the decisions for myself. I might, I might not just get to have control if or when I have kids or, or whether or not I can marry this person or that person or, or you know, I, all these opportunities will be missed because I'm doing these things to the glory of God. I'm afraid that if I do all things to the glory of God, I won't get to live my life to the fullest. I'll miss out on the glory days of my youth and I'll look back at the end of my life and I'll see all of the opportunities that I missed because I was doing the things to God's glory and it's not fair because my life will be incomplete. Do you honestly think that you will look back at the end of your life and actually say that? Really? When you stand before the Lord, do you honestly think you'll look back with regret over all the missed opportunities that you had in this life for the sake of following him? No. What this really comes down to is not knowing God's promises and his purposes in the world. That's the answer. Or what about this? Maybe you've bought into the lie that this world tells you that there are things out there that aren't simply things that you could have or things that you may have. they are things that you need to have. You've got to have those things. If they're there, they're meant to be enjoyed. They're meant to be used. We don't have to question them. Have you bought into the lie that this is your world and you are God? That you know what is best for you. You know it really, that you have the best motives and you use the best means towards the best ends, that you've got this. My friends, that is pride, that is arrogance. That is you thinking you know better than God. 
Or maybe you've just bought into the lie that there are some gray areas, that you are free to make decisions one way or another without any repercussion because God doesn't really care about those things. God does not care about what I do. God does not care about what I eat or what I drink. Really? What does this passage say? Friends, all of that is a lie. It's exchanging the truth of God for a lie. It's suppressing the truth about God in unrighteousness and exchanging his glory for lesser things. Do not be deceived. It is proof that we are unwilling to live as we were created to live. Now, so far, I've just answered the question why we don't do all things to the glory of God. Now, why do we? do all things to the glory of God? Why are we called to seek God's glory in all things? Well, for this, you have to go back to Genesis 1. You have to start with the beginning. You have to start with our purpose in creation. After God spoke and he created light and darkness, he created the heavens, he created the land, the sea, vegetation, sun, moon, and stars, all living creatures after their kind, Genesis 1:26 says, "Let us make man in our image, after our likeness." And God gave man dominion over all that He had created. And it said in verse 27, "So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them." God didn't simply speak man into creation. If we read in Genesis 2 of how God formed Adam from the dust of the ground by his own hand, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. Here is the eternally existent, all-sufficient, all-wise, all-powerful God, intimately and uniquely involving himself in the creation of man to have relationship with him. Not because God was lonely, not because he needed man, but because God is glorious. And he gave man the special privilege, unlike the rest of creation, to be made in his image. Made in his image to represent God as his vice regent, to have that authority, that dominion over his creation, and also to resemble God's character, God's purposes, God's promises to one another and to the world. And God did this according to Isaiah 43 verse 7, for his own glory. God, in His marvelous wisdom and grace, created us to image Him, to represent Him, to resemble Him to the rest of creation, to make the invisible God visible. We were created to glorify God, to do all things to His glory. That's the purpose of our creation. That is why we were made in the image of God. Mankind and mankind alone. But of course, if you know the story, we didn't do that. Adam and Eve desired to be like God, and so they rebelled against him. And as a consequence of their sin, we all have this internal desire to rebel against God, to try to be like him. We've all rebelled. We've all sinned against God. And we deserve only his judgment and wrath. But we know that the story doesn't end there. It didn't end in Genesis 3, though it should have. God had every right to end the story there. That's what we all deserve. And though he is transcendent, all-sufficient, and sovereign, had every right to leave us in our condemnation, God continued to pursue man. God continued to reveal his glory to man. God continued to act on behalf of man to redeem him, to restore him, to deliver him, until you reach the pinnacle, the climax of that, in which his own son, 
the image of God, the perfect image of God, the exact imprint of his nature took on flesh, became one of us, lived a perfect life, a life of complete obedience. Not only did did Christ desire to do all things to the glory of God, he actually did all things to the glory of God. He lived a perfectly obedient life that you and I could never live, and he gave that life up by sacrificing himself on the cross for the sin and the punishment that was due us. So that if we would repent of our sin and turn to him, we might be reconciled to God. We might be restored. We might be renewed. We might be recreated. We might be born again. We might be put back in that place of imaging God once more as we seek to image Christ. This is God's work. God worked to make this possible. We could not achieve this on our own. God is working to enable us to do that, to transform our hearts and minds. God is doing it ultimately to the end where we stand before him one day and we will be like Jesus. Because John 3, 1, uh, 1 John 3, 2 says, we will see him and we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. We will actually be like Jesus, completely glorifying God in all that we do. That's our end. That's the end goal. That's what we're doing. That's what we're striving for. Friends, you have to understand something. To err is not human. Not as if we just only err. We sin. We flat out sin. It's not even that to sin is human. The reality is to reflect the glory of God, the perfect nature and character of God to his creation, that is to be human. And the truth of the matter is we're only living as humans when we, by faith in Jesus, do all things to the glory of God. That's when we're truly human. That's when we're living according to our purpose. That's when we're living according to our redemption. Friends, that's what we've been talking about so far. When we talked about Colossians 1, that we exist to exalt Christ, that we strive to put him first in all things. We see this work that he's doing, that we, that, that we become like him. We, the reason why we strive to present everyone mature in Christ is to be like Christ. The reason why we talked about transformation from 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Or in Colossians 3, 9 and 10, see that you put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Whereas he says in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is why Paul says so that whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So why are you called to do all things to the glory of God? It's because you were created to image God. You were created to reflect his nature, his character, his purposes, and his promises to one another and to everything else in creation. Everything. And because we have failed to do that, we sought to image and reflect other things. So God sent his son, Jesus, the perfect image of God, to redeem us so that we could once again do that for which we were created. You were created, and if you are in Christ, you were recreated, you were redeemed, so that you could do all things to the glory of God. So that you can image him. So that you can reflect him. So then, 
We've identified what the glory of God is. We've identified why we are called to do all things to the glory of God. And now we've got to address the issue, what does it mean to do all things to the glory of God? What does that really mean for me in my life? Now, hopefully, if you're like me, the weight of this reality that we've been created and saved and called to reflect the God to one another, the world around us, I hope that that carries with it just some seriousness, right? Some weightiness. This is a heavy thing. Glory is heavy. And this reality that you are in him and meant to live your life for his glory and not your own, this reality reaches in and it takes a hold of every single facet of your life. There is not one part of you, not one decision, not one thought in which God does not have right to claim that's mine. That is mine. That is meant to reflect me. Everything. And the motives of your heart before God will absolutely dictate whether each decision that you make is to the glory of God or not. The reality is there is no gray issue. There is no gray matter. Our motives dictate everything. But the call given to every believer is to glorify God in all things, to do all things to the glory of God. And so what does that look like practically? And we've got to be careful here because what we want to do is reduce that down into something very, very manageable, right? So again, I have to address what it's not first. Does doing all things to the glory of God simply mean that we just need to have faith? After all, Romans 14:23 if after if anything that does not proceed from faith it's sin maybe the opposite of that is true so that maybe everything done in faith is not sin right that's been the logic of some people as long as i'm doing things in faith i'm okay it's not sin well we know that this is not true and how do we know this because every believer minus 1 which is Jesus, has sinned, right? We also know that the demons believe and shudder. So faith in itself can't just mean faith there. What Paul really means is faith is not just having right beliefs about God, but what he's talking about is living in such a way that those beliefs are reflected and put on display, that we're reflecting the glory of God. That's what he means when he says If you don't do it by faith, then it's sin. Okay, well, let's keep going. Maybe it it just means that we need to have faith and we need to be thankful, right? Doing all things to the glory of God means that we, we we have to be sure to give thanks for it. I mean, after all, doesn't verse 30 say just right before that, it, Paul says, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I being denounced because of that for which I, have, I give thanks? Right, so wouldn't the conclusion of that be, okay, I just got to give thanks. That's all I got to do. If I thank God, then it's okay. Right? But in this case, Paul is speaking of an issue of eating meat offered to idols. And honestly, I think he's responding to a question that he's heard from the Corinthians in that. And, and quite honestly, he's being sarcastic in tone. This is what I think is happening here. Okay? He's not mocking them, but he's just like, listen, guys, the question inappropriate. But is that really all it takes to do things to the glory of God? Let's, let's case test this. Ready? Okay. Lord, I thank you for this pornography that I'm about to view. Does that make it okay? No. What about this? Is it glorifying for someone who is obese to give thanks as he inhales an entire gallon of ice cream? It's a far more sensitive issue, but the answer is absolutely not. So, 
Do we need to give thanks to God? Is that a means of glorifying God? Absolutely. Give thanks. But that in and of itself does not necessarily mean that you're doing all things to the glory of God. Okay, well, what about this? Let's add to faith and thanksgiving spiritual disciplines. Because Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5, for everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for because it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. See, look at that. It's created good. You give thanks. All you have to do is read the Bible and pray and the thing is made holy and I can do it. Now, just doing things from time to time in an effort to buy favor with God does not give you license to do whatever you want. Okay? It's not as though God has a love tank that you just need to fill up by praying and by singing and by going to church and by reading the Bible and by sharing the gospel and by giving so that you can then take that, that what you filled up in that love tank and then go and pursue your other loves. That doesn't make it okay. Spiritual disciplines are not a means of buying God. What they are is a strategy for repentance and faith. They're meant to lead us to draw our hearts and our affections towards God so that we would desire to do all things to his glory. That's their end, not to buy God off. And so if we're thinking that I'm going to come in as long as I'm doing these things that I'm okay, then you've missed the point. Well, what about grace? Doesn't God give us grace so that the things we do are pleasing to him because of Christ? I mean, we're sinners. We can't do truly do anything to the glory of God, and we need God's grace. And so we just need to just trust in God's grace that he will make everything okay. Well, should we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. But Jude says it even more harshly. Certain people have crept into the church unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality, that is, license, licentiousness, and deny the only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And if you understand the context here, he's not saying that these people have outright abandoned the faith. They still will say that Jesus Christ is Lord, but what they've done is presumed upon the grace of God and said, I can live however I want. I can make whatever decisions I want. I'm just going to presume upon the grace of God to forgive me of my sin. It is cheap grace. And God is dishonored in it. And he warns them. You're ungodly people designated for condemnation. Okay, then, well, aren't things simply a matter of conscience? Isn't that the ultimate dictator, right? If my conscience is clear, then I'm okay to do whatever I want, right? Yes, it is a matter of conscience, absolutely. But Scripture tells us that our consciences could be evil, that our consciences could be seared, and that according to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, our consciences must be purified by the blood of Christ who offered himself without blemish to God so that we might live not for dead works but to serve the living God. How do you know that your conscience is pure before God? Because you're motivated in serving God, doing all things to his glory. Okay, well, don't I have the Holy Spirit? Do I not have the helper who is working within me, the making me competent to do all things to the glory of God? Okay, well, read 1 Corinthians. Okay, just read it. Because what you see there is these people clearly had the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was working in an amazing way. They lacked no spiritual gift whatsoever, and they were the, the most jacked up church in the New Testament. Right? But Paul even answers that in, in 1 Corinthians 14, 37. He says, listen, if anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, then he should acknowledge that the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Basically, if you have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit agrees with me because this is inspired. 
So we can't use that for an excuse either. Okay then, well, what about my rights? What am I entitled to? Am I not free from the law? Are these things not permitted? What am I free to do? Aren't these things lawful? Well, friends, honestly, this is the wrong question to ask. It's the wrong series of questions to ask. Yes, but you are bound by the law of Christ. And the law of Christ says that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, and all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The law of Christ says, according to John 13, 34, and 35, by this, uh, the law of Christ is that you would love one another. Just as he has loved you, you are also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And if you understand the context of what's happening here, I wish I had time to sit down and just unpack it all. You know, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 11, 1. It's all one big series. It's not about what is permissible. It is about what is helpful. Now, if you have an NIV, poor translation there, it is what is helpful, not what is beneficial. When we read beneficial, we think, I'm thinking about myself. What is beneficial to me, right? But what he's talking about is this is others-focused. He's talking about how we need to do all things to the glory of God and for the good of other people. We're seeking to build them up, to, to lift up other people, to love other people and put them before ourselves. This is what it ultimately means, that we're doing all things, seeking honor uh, to honor God in all things and build up his body, the church, not to please ourselves. And if I could sit down and unpack 1 Corinthians 8 through 11 for you, what we would see is that it's not ultimately about you. This is what he's saying. It's not about you. You were called by Christ to love, to love God and to love others. And in doing so, we seek to remove the idolatry from our hearts and we willfully and gladly give up rights in order to serve the body, to leave no hindrance, to take that extra step, to remove every stumbling block from the gospel. Our desire is to be above reproach all in all things, to go the extra step so that no one could think evil of about us so that no one could think evil about our God. And you can summarize all that Paul means and he intends in 1 Corinthians 6 verses 19 and 20 where he says your life is not your own. You were bought with a price, so honor God in your bodies. We're in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul is not adding to the gospel here. He is only following the pattern that he sees in his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, whose sole desire was to glorify his Father in heaven. That's it. So to do all things to the glory of God, means that we reflect the nature and character and purposes and promises of God to others. When we glorify God, I hope you understand, you don't add to God's glory. Right? It's not like God was somehow less glorious until you came in and to save the day and you added to the glory of God. I kind of use an illustration often. It's like sometimes we think, Adding to the glory of God is like we're in a dimly lit room and we all come in with our flashlights. And as I turn my flashlight on, I add to the light that's in the room. And so if we all come together and we all have our flashlights and we all turn our flashlights on, then we're adding to the light that's in the room. And God is more glorified than he was any, at any other point in time. Well, friends, that's just not true. God was as glorious as he could possibly be before creation ever existed. He is the all-sufficient one. Okay? We don't add to God's glory. We merely reflect God's glory. When we glorify God, here's what we do. It's like going into a room filled with billions and billions and billions of light bulbs, and we hold up a mirror to reflect that light around the room. 
We don't add a thing to it. We don't add light to the room. Our desire is to reflect that pure white light to everything else around. That's what it means to glorify God. That's what it means to do all things to his glory. To be a clearer and clearer reflection of the glory of God. Are you laboring towards that in your life? You know, to do this, just by way of some practical application, to do this, you have to think biblically. It makes sense, right? We can't glorify God unless we know God. We can't glorify God unless we truly know ourselves and we've used the word as the the tool by which we measure the motives of our heart, that it uncovers those things. We, We have to think rightly about God. If we're going to reflect him well, we have to know him and his purposes. But unfortunately, studies have shown that 50% of self-professing Christians don't read the word. And that those who do spend on average eight minutes a day in it. And that is compared with the same study that shows that people spend on average nine hours a day in front of media. Now, this could be... TV, this could be movies, this could be video games, this could be news, this could be books, this could be email, this could be social media, like Facebook, all of that kind of stuff. Okay, now when you hold this up, eight minutes a day in the Word and nine hours a day in social media, what do you think you're going to reflect? Right? What do you think you are going to glorify? What do you think is going to be just intuitive for you? Another practical strategy. In seeking to reflect God's glory in all things, we have to question the desires of our hearts. We have to question our motives. Often we have to distrust them. Because here's the thing, your conscience, your knowledge, your spiritual experiences and everything else that you might kind of use as the gauge of rightness or wrongness in any decision that you make, those can be fallible. They can be wrong. Don't trust your gut. Right? This was a problem for the Corinthians. It is a problem for us. Don't trust in your feelings. Don't just follow the crowd or the natural course of things. Realize that you do not always have the best motives, that you do not always use the best means to reach the best possible ends. Test all things against the word of God. Humble yourself before him. And this leads to another application. Seek the counsel of others who know you and who love you enough to challenge you, to question your heart because they love you, right? They seek to apply the scalpel of God's word to remove areas of of cancerous desires in your life. That's also an obligation that we have to be willing to do that, to love people enough to tell them the truth rather than loving ourselves so we want to please them. A godly brother can see into your heart far better than you can. You must involve others if you are to do all things to the glory of God. And this requires people that are different than you. Because if you spend 24-7 with somebody, guess how different you're going to think than one another. Not very, right? And you're going to influence one another in whatever decisions that you make. And that can be a positive thing, but that can be a negative thing. You need people that are different than you because they're able to look because of life experience or just sort of being outside of it to be able to discern, right? Now, this requires that you do more than just read books or blogs or podcasts. This means that you study scriptures together with people who are different than you, but who know you and will love you enough to speak into your heart. Now, books, blogs, podcasts, they're great. I am very thankful for them. You should use them, but they are not infallible. And a lot of times we kind of treat them like they are, right? You you kind of have go-to people, right, that you just, you look to them as the answer, Bible answer man, Hank Hannity. Anybody remember him? Yeah. I mean, 
wrong. <laughs> All right. But, but you see, here's, here's the problem. When you approach things alone, one, you can misunderstand and misapply what they're saying. Right? You are the ultimate authority, the interpretive authority on whatever it is that they're writing. And you could just kind of misapply it. You could misunderstand what it is. You need somebody else to help you think through that. Another issue with this approach is that we often gravitate towards the people, the Christian media that tell us what we want to hear. Now, this can be a good thing. We've, you know, I mean, we've been extremely helped by some people, by the sermons, by what they've written and all that kind of stuff. And so we gravitate towards them. And, but we're, we're bolstered by the fact that they're telling us what we want to hear on whatever this issue is we're trying to think through. And so we only look to them. And we don't look at the opposite side of things. We, don't want, to, we want to ignore the other side of the ethical argument. And we also fall into the trap of just exalting men, to glorifying men, to think that they're infallible, that, that they can't be questioned. And we ignore the wisdom of those who are around us. And we look to these guys and we're like, oh, this guy has a Ph.D. He's written all these books and all these articles. He's got this church of thousands of people. You know, he speaks at all these conferences all the time. Surely this guy is right. Surely this guy cannot be questioned. Surely there has to be something to this. Other people agree with him who I respect. Therefore, he must be right. Not to mention the fact, but if you look carefully, what you see is an equal number of Ph.D., book writing, church of a thousand people, conference speakers who completely disagree with him. It takes more discernment than that. And here's another thing about that. Just because John Piper would speak generally and present an issue this way, like he would come to this conclusion, does not necessarily mean that if he were sitting in the room with you, discerning the desires of your heart, that his counsel would be the same. Right? So read that stuff, but read it with other people. Question your motives. Seek the godly means that he's provided right around you. And be deceived by this idea of, of the glory of men. But look at what God has provided all around you. You need help in discerning your desires. You need people that will help speak words of life to you to help you glorify God in all things. So listen to the books, listen to the podcasts, but don't sell, let them sell short the means of godly wisdom that he has placed in your life. And just a final exhortation, final application, and this is most important. Imitate the Father. If you are truly desiring in all ways to reflect the very nature and character and promises and purposes of God, you're going to be a whole lot closer to being sure that you're doing all things to his glory. The, que- the, the reality is we're all trying to be like someone. As much as a nonconformist as you may claim to be, you're trying to be like all the other nonconformists. So who are you trying to be like? Really? Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Friends, doing all things to the glory of God is not about duty. It's not about discipline. It's really about delight. It's really about what you love. You become what you behold. You imitate what you love. As you grow in your love for the Father, your desire is to glorify him in all things. And when we live in the reality that we are his beloved children, that he has set his affections on us, when we didn't even know what it meant to love, there's great hope in that. We walk in love when we recognize that we have been loved. We serve when we recognize that Christ has served and sacrificed himself for us. Now, as a kid, did you ever try to imitate your mom or your dad? You ever have those times where you walked around in your dad's gigantic shoes, right? You know, you're clomping all over the place and tripping and falling, but you got back up and you did it again. You ever have those experiences? Why did you do that? Why did you put your dad's shoes on? Was it because you knew that he loved you? 
and that you loved him and that you wanted to be like your dad. Right? We imitate the things that we love. Friends, you are loved by God. You are, if you are in Christ, you are his child. He loved you enough that he sent his son to die in your place that you might be restored to him. Love him by reflecting him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that this morning our hearts and minds would be challenged by the truth of your word. I pray that recognizing how deep and how marvelous your love that you have shown us in Christ and how we were created to image you and and we were saved so that we might image you, might transform our hearts and our lives so that we might long to do all things to your glory. God, I, I pray that we would rest in your love towards us that we would marvel in it, that we would marvel at you. And because we are your children, dearly loved, we would desire to imitate you in all things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.